0: Welcome back to Christian Outdoors podcast. I'm your host, Pete Rogers, and this is the podcast where we discuss all things outdoors and how we can enjoy God every day today's podcast is being brought to you by cva specifically the new cva acura extreme series is all new for the 2021 season with two configurations that provide a level of overall performance and ease of use that is unparalleled in the muzzle loading industry today the new cva lrx and mrx are both available in the all-new 45 caliber and the traditional 50 caliber versions and and I have to tell you, with the Cerakote finish on the begara barrels, with the real tree or veil camo synthetic stocks, I don't know the right word for it, but uh, it was just incredible. I was able to actually shoot them this past week. At, down at, at Talladega, Alabama at the CMP Marksmanship course and I gotta say that the new 45 caliber Acura MRX and LRX I shot both of them was just it was unbelievable the accuracy and the ability of this of, of this rifle to perform at extreme distances for muzzleloaders typically muzzleloading is a close game sport but CVA has changed the game again not only with their paramount but especially with this Acura with the, the most accurate shooting break action muzzleloader on the market today bar none it's not even close within short order i was able to shoot this 45 caliber acura at a steel silhouette pig and hit it three times consecutively at 300 yards and with a ballistic coefficient that is that is equal to a 270 or a 308 the 45 caliber acura is just it's a game changer for anybody who loves muzzleloader shooting and muzzleloading hunting this new forty five caliber is gonna be something that's just gonna blow your socks off, I gotta tell you. And with the new Power Belt ELR bullet that is recommended for these long ranges and shooting two oh nine, blackhorn two oh nine powder, uh, we were shooting hundred grains of powder out of this forty five and hitting targets at three hundred yards. It was absolutely incredible. The LRX is a long-range version, comes with a 30-inch barrel, and the MRX is what they call their mountain hunter with a 26-inch barrel. So it's a perfect combination for whichever you want to do. Both of them have threaded barrels, so you can put a muzzle brake on the end of it if you choose, and it has a thread protector, of course, as well. Adjustable cheek piece. Who doesn't like to have to uh, make adjustments to their to the comb of their, of their rifle to get their alignment with their new optics? Uh, with these new 50 millimeter scopes and bigger nowadays, we're having to use taller bases in order to accommodate the glass that's on top of our guns. To do that, we have to raise our head off the stock. Well, the new adjustable cheek piece or comb on the Acura line is going to make that much more comfortable. One screw raises up the cheekpiece so that you can get perfect alignment into your optics and allow for more accurate shooting. The new Acura MRX and LRX from CVA is going to change the game, especially if you look at the 45 caliber. If you're a traditionalist and really prefer the 50 caliber, it's available in that as well. Go to cva.com to learn more. Welcome back to Christian Outdoors Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Rogers, and this is episode number 75. Before I get into today's uh, interview that I conducted last week with Mr. Charles Ruth, the Deer and Turkey Project Manager for South Carolina, and we're going to talk a lot about turkey hunting and about turkey populations and and tips and tactics and uh, some of the research that's gone on as far as the eastern wild turkey here in South Carolina and in the southeast. It's going to be a really interesting interview. But before I do, I want to remind you that that my new book is out for uh, pre-order. You can reserve your copy at org. It is entitled, Do You Enjoy God? Twelve Steps to Enjoying God Every Day. And this is a book that uh, is really the catalyst behind the podcast. As as you know, as a listener to Christian Outdoors podcast, we talk about all things outdoors and how we can enjoy God every day and the and the. The premise behind the book is really the launching pad for the podcast. It's, it's an effort to enjoy God every day and to encourage you, the listener, to be able to do that as well. And so this book is 12 steps to help you to, to be able to do that. And, and I encourage you, it's 1499 right now for pre-order. The price will go up to 1799 once the pre-orders are done, and the book is available to the public. But if you're a listener to the show and you want to reserve your copy, just go to christianoutdoors.org, and you can find the link there where you can go ahead and purchase the the uh, copy, reserve it before it becomes available for fourteen ninety nine. If you're a church or a small group looking to buy ten copies or more to use as a study guide, then just contact me at pete at christianoutdoors.org, and we can talk about some bulk discounts that I'm offering as well. Do you enjoy God? 12 Steps to Enjoying God Every Day is available for pre-order right now at krishnaoutdoors.org. Also, I want to remind you that if you're not following us on social media, please do go to Instagram, Facebook. It's under Outdoors Podcast. You can find us there. And we are posting things several times a week in order to keep you updated as to what's going on with these things. Um, we're in the middle of turkey season here in South Carolina, my favorite time of the year and i actually will be traveling to kentucky in a week or so with iron man outdoors again to chase turkeys up there as well and i'm excited about that get to be with some christian men in a hunting environment and get to chase turkeys in a different state it's going to be a great time so with that in mind today i want to uh, introduce to you a one of the most knowledgeable wildlife biologists that i've ever had the chance to interview or talk to or meet uh Mr. Charles Ruth has been the deer and turkey project leader here in South Carolina for as long as I can remember. And he has been through some ups and downs in our deer and turkey populations. He has worked diligently to manage those populations to make it fair for sportsmen, but also to protect the resource. And I am thrilled to have him on the show today as we're going to discuss uh, specifically turkeys. And we're going to talk about uh, some of the changes in the turkey seasons that's happened here in South Carolina. We're also going to talk about the declining turkey populations and some of the things that have gone into the research behind that. And we're going to talk about uh, some of the ways in which people can successfully hunt turkeys, public land, private land, all these things that that are centered around turkey hunting here. And I'm excited again to have my friend, Mr. Charles Ruth, join me on Christian Outdoors Podcast. Charles, welcome to the show. Why don't you tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself and what you do, specifically in regard to, to turkeys here in South Carolina. All right, Pete, good good
1: to see you again, old friend. Um, yeah, again, my name's Charles Ruth. I'm a wildlife biologist with SCDNR. I've been with the agency something over 25 years. I actually hired in as the deer program coordinator, and I still do that. Uh, picked up the wild turkey program in about 2004 when our former, you probably would have Dave Baumann, he's he's mm-hmm. probably as responsible as any person for us having turkeys in, in South Carolina because he was involved in the the real meat and potatoes of our restoration efforts in the 70s, 80s, and
0: 90s. Right. Then, um, and that was the heyday of turkeys.
1: Yeah, it was. And, and certainly we'll talk about that. And then uh, I also have some responsibilities with our bear program. And actually with the agency, we now have a big game program, which includes, um, of course, deer, turkey, and black bear. And, and I try to coordinate that for the agency. Mm-hmm. I'm from South Carolina, Pete. Um, spent most of my uh, 57 years in the state spent a little time in Florida actually graduated from high school out in Texas and got a little little taste of hunting and, and so forth out out in Texas and uh, but I've been here like I said uh, nearly over 50 of my 57 years. Uh, again came to work for the department in the mid 90s. Uh, and you know it's just been it's been a wild ride I tell you folks don't uh, I, I think a lot of folks think that a, a biologist goes and visits property owners, couple times a week and that afternoon after they finish their site visit they go hunting I've never done that (laughs) yeah really (laughs) Uh, at this point in my career I'm in the office nine days out of ten it's it's like running a small business almost with our very tagging programs there's a lot of purchasing procurement a lot of I's to be dotted T's to be crossed to run these programs so the public can take advantage of these great natural resources that we have and and then we've got research uh, that we're involved in and, and mm-hmm. I'm sure we can talk about that, but, uh, the day goes by in
0: a hurry, brother. I can tell you that it does. It does. It does. And I mean, you've been involved with the deer and Turkey program here in sacramento for as long as I can remember since I've been, cause I started writing in about 2000. And so you were, you were already there. So most of my work has been with you and, and, uh, since, as I was saying earlier, is that you are the deer in Turkey, but we're going to focus on Turkey because we're in Turkey season when this is coming out here in South Carolina. And we have kind of a split season where it opens in the lower part of the state, game zones three and four. Is is that right? Yeah. Three and four right. March 22nd and goes to April 30th. That's correct. Yes, sir. And then in game zone one and two is April one to May five, May 10th, May 10th. May 10th. So it was kind of a split season. And uh, you
1: know, if you recall, Pete, it used to be like that. Historically we had a split season and then right. 2016, the legislature made a change. They wanted to unify the seasons
0: mm-hmm.
1: went March 20 through may five for four years. And then now we're back to a, to a split season.
0: So. Right, right, right. Yeah. Cause it used to be March 15 in the low country to April or to May 1, and then it was April 1 to May 1 everywhere I lived. That's correct. Uh, yeah, yeah. but now we've, you know, for years we had a limit of five gobblers, which even in the 80s, I thought that was too many. Even when we had turkeys everywhere, I thought that was too many. Now, I want to ask you this before we get into the change to the current three-gobbler limit is how many people actually percentage-wise killed five turkeys a year?
1: Well, that, that's an interesting point because it's a very low percentage. And, and what I can tell you kind of to the lead up, and, and I agree with you. And I think a lot of hunters historically smelled a rat with a five bird bag limit. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you know, there's some guys that, man, I'm going to kill five birds if I can, mm-hmm. but that, that was out of bounds, out of line compared with virtually all other States, you know, Alabama right. may be one exception. Um, But to your question, I was looking at these numbers some years ago, year after year, and what I found was that the percentage of hunters that take more than three birds, so that would be guys four or five, they're only around maybe two point five percent of the hunters. Very small number of hunters, but when you look at their contribution to the total harvest, it's about twenty or twenty two percent.
0: My goodness!
1: So, so you got a you know,
0: 2 to 3% of the hunters killing 20% of the birds. That's crazy. Uh, You know, and I saw a similar number that on your 2019 report that I was reviewing for this, is that even with the, now that we're down to the three bird limit, which I think is plenty, personally. And uh, actually, as uh, a dear friend of mine, Charles Hudson, who passed away last year, great turkey hunter, uh, he and I were talking a couple years ago about this, said that we had self-imposed limits of two birds or three birds for 25 years, uh, I would still go and call and play with them and stuff, but I just wouldn't shoot them anymore because that's what all the fun is. Right. Is all is that is is interaction. But, but uh, it was interesting to see. The 2019 stats, I think it's the most recent that we have, that I've been able to find it was that same percentage that you were talking about, Charles.
1: It's exactly right. And I, I think, I think going from a five bird to a three bird limit, I think there was some net savings in there. Mm-hmm but again to your point you still got the guys that tag out at 3 they're 2 or 3%
0: but yet they harvest you know i can't remember what them 18 19.7 yeah there you go there you go 19.7% of the total harvest which was 17,900 or something like that uh in 2019 uh, but what i couldn't find in that charles what's the total population do we know what the total population of birds is in the state
1: you know that's kind of an onerous thing and i've got a model that 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 we can kind of plug information that we know into that we're relatively confident into and it it tells you a number that makes all the sense in the world because it's very intuitive i could you know it's not complicated or i couldn't do it you're looking at gobbler to hen ratio you're looking at the you know yeah Um,
0: and
1: and so what that number tells us is we're looking at something in the 120,000 birds. And, of course, that's changed some over time. In fact, right, right. It did over time, if you look at that. And, and it, it it's really largely based on harvest because you've gotten it. Again, it's intuitive because you've got to have a certain number of birds out there to harvest a certain number of birds. Correct. You know, it's simple.
0: Right, right. And and when you're looking at that hundred and twenty thousand number, and we're just using that as a as a guess a guesstimate. That's a good that's a good uh a biological term in it, Of we don't know you're basing that on gobblers killed, and then from that you're extrapolating how many hens are there from yep. from, from that.
1: And you're probably familiar, we do a very large and have since the early eighties our summer turkey survey. Right. It involves our agency employees, involves folks like yourself, yep. the general public. And so we've had a what now is a 40-year plus summer survey. And what we're looking at, Pete, is that gobbler to hen ratio is done in the late summer, so you can tell what's what. Right. And, and it very importantly is the recruitment ratio. And that's the number of polts per successful hen. And that, my friend. Is what we have seen change, and it's is probably one of the biggest underlying facets of this decline we've seen in South Carolina and in the Southeast. Other states are seeing it. Our 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 recruitment ratio was out of sight, as you would expect in the in the, in the early to mid, even towards the late eighties. I mean, we were pumping turkeys out. Yes, that's what. That's what got us in the turkey business in the '80s and '90s, and you were participating. Yeah,
0: absolutely, absolutely.
1: But I'll tell you, and this is some I've got some of this information on our website. You can look at the graph of that recruitment ratio. Something changed there in the mid to late '80s, and it has generally been on a 25-year downward trend since then. Right. So to break it down for you. Back when it was really good, our average recruitment ratio annually was over three. It would normally be three to four. Now we're lucky in clapping if we get two.
0: Now that's pulse per hen. That's
1: pulse per hen. And that's okay. at the end of the summer now. Yeah, that, yeah. That's when these birds have, you know, they're no longer popcorn predators. They they're up right. the size of a chicken and they've basically been recruited into that fall population. We well, just
0: let me add, we, uh because this, this may help the listener. I know it'll help me. Is you say that the recruitment is is two? Used to be three or four. Out of how many eggs? Isn't it didn't. It average fourteen. Is yeah, that what right. I read somewhere?
1: Yeah. The the work we just yeah right on the work we just did at Web Center it was thirteen. So yeah. 12.
0: Okay. Yeah. All right. So so out of a dozen, we'll just use that. Out of out of a dozen eggs that a hen will lay and and sit on and nest and and hopefully hatch you are now lucky to get two that survived to adulthood.
1: Yes. And it has generally been 1. 1.5, 1. 1.7. And this has been going on for almost 15 years now. And and again, oh, goodness. I, I reiterate that that stands out to me as much as anything. And I, you know, there's obviously some other things like habitat we can talk about, but
0: um, well, we're just and, getting the input. Yeah. And everybody's, uh, blaming the coyotes, which is a factor. And, and, you know, I think you just made a great segue into the recruitment side of things. Cause that's something that's very fascinating to me. Um, because when we talk about this, now this, I am not a biologist. This is just a, an avid Turkey hunters observation is back in the eighties, nineties, we had these pine plantations everywhere. And the pine plantations were thick and nasty and created, in my opinion, excellent, nesting habitat for the hens to go and lay their eggs and to at least hatch them and give them a chance Um, a lot of that's now monoculture it's giant they're ready to be harvested or they're in the harvest stages now and so there's not as much undergrowth there's not as much protection and then you add into it nest predators and and apex predators and it just seems like that all that kind of comes together is am i close?
1: No, I think you're on it and and um I completely agree that we're we're just coincidentally at a point in time in recent years, you know 10 to 15 years where timber rotations, long-term timber rotations and we're not just talking about pines. Right, right. We're we're we and if, if folks will drive around what we're looking at are Timber stands that are fifteen years old and greater—they mm-hmm. have very little early successional vegetation, which we all know is good nesting and brood rearing habitat. I think that's a huge thing. I got some statistics from the Forester Commission a couple of years ago. Again, this isn't about just pine trees. This is about right. statewide uh, timber stands, and I'm, I'm probably going to be off on this a little bit. But between the, like the year 2004 and 2018, there was a like 104% increase in timber stands that were greater than 15 years old. That's just not good. That's just not good.
0: That's terrible for wildlife.
1: Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, there was like a 30% decrease in timber stands that were less than 15 years old. We all know from, you know, our deer hunting and turkey hunting experience these animals like bad brush, man, bad that's, what's, that's, that's, where you get productivity mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. It, it's just coincidental that where we are across the state yeah. and really across the Southeast with, um, you know, where our timber stands are right now, that's always changing. Right. But, um, you know, timber's big and in in, in,
0: in, from an industry standpoint
1: and, and it's just going to take a lot of work to, you know, get things back where they were, if, if they go in that direction.
0: Right. And, and that just takes time. That takes time. I have another theory, if I may ask if this is it. Um, And as you know, I'm a trapper and I I absolutely love trapping. And what I have seen though, Charles, in the decades that I've been doing that is a astronomical growth of the population of raccoons and possums. And, and that goes back in my opinion to when I was a kid, because you and I are the same age it's when I was a kid, Every guy in high school had a had a dog box in his truck. And after school, as soon as it got dark, you went coon hunting and you shot every coon that you saw. And now they don't shoot coons if they even hunt them. People don't even hunt them anymore. And a raccoon will eat every egg that it finds. If it finds a nest of 14 eggs, it's going to eat 14 eggs. And the population of them has gotten so high in my estimation that just nest predators in general, coons, possums, skunks, and do do armadillos feed on turkey eggs?
1: Uh, you know, there's not a lot of evidence of that, and of course we what yes, really, I thought to you. you know, parts of the state have had armadillos. Parts of the state you're starting to see them, but you know, there's parts of the state that are still experiencing this decline, and armadillos aren't there yet. So right, again, right, yeah. So so I won't put them in it. But let me say something to to kind of validate what you're talking about, and and I appreciate what you're saying about you know. 70s, 80s kids, they were out there hunting coons. They were trapping coons because you could get, you know, $3, $5 for a possum, $7 right. for a raccoon, whatever it may be. So I don't, I, I tend to disagree. I mean, I tend to agree with you, as do a lot of folks in my position, that that change in in, in trapping, okay, fur is dead. It is yes. dead. There's no value for, for folks to be out there trapping plus what you said about you know, the folks that are coon hunting now, they just run them up a tree and watch their dog, and they don't really shoot them out the tree. Yeah. So I agree that we're, we very well could be carrying a lot higher predator load, predator density of these traditional known nest predators, raccoons and possums, A and B. But the mm-hmm. other thing is with the habitat situation that we're talking about, we may be setting these birds up, for a problem because of the way the habitat is. In other words, it's an easier find for these right. run, you know, varmints to pick up on on nesting behavior and so forth. So it's a double whammy.
0: Right, right. So how would a a landowner or a leaseholder, you know, a, a hunting club or a landowner how would they go about creating really good nesting habitat? We see a lot of stuff in the deer country about, you know, hinge hinge cutting and 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 things of that nature to create good cover for, for deer. But how do you go about doing it for, for turkeys?
1: Yeah, a lot of it's the same. It's just managing for early successional vegetation. You've got burning, and I know people want to talk all kind of different ways about burning. Burning is good for turkeys. Even these burns that we, you, know, you hear so much clamor about that are what we call growing season burns that are mm-hmm. actually done about when these birds are nesting. And, and I don't want to get off into a tangent, but the, there's a lot of research going on right now uh, related to burning. A lot of your listeners, if they're big-time turkey enthusiasts, they're going to know the name of Mike Chamberlain. He is probably the foremost turkey researcher in the country. Uh, Brett Collier is right there with him. Mike's at Georgia. Brett's at LSU. These guys have had, they've monitored over 500 nests across the Southeast. Virtually all of these nests could be involved in a fire. They, they lose almost no, hen, no no nest to these two fires. Okay. Obviously, occasionally a fire is going to run over a nest. Right. What it is, Pete, is that these hens, they seem to select to nest in a one to two year old burn. Yeah, Those yeah. types of burns are not going to be in line for these growing season burns because a growing season burn it's gone too long. Right, they right. don't want to nest there, so it's almost as if, um, it, so so again, they're going to show up where it's been burned in the last couple of years. They're not going to be where it's going to you know going to have a real hot fire for it. Uh, right, deeper. right, right, right. It's right. almost a mutually exclusive situation there.
0: Right, so the hens just don't tend to nest in the areas where the where you're going to be burning anyway, that's
1: well, that type of burn, so right. you know by and large, all the most of the burning and you know everybody wants to talk about uh the growing season burns, burns that are going on right now, and they get worried about them, but you know by and large, most of the burning that, that is done it's already been done, it's winter burn
0: mm-hmm.
1: okay mm-hmm. so so a winter burn is starting to green up, and those birds love that
0: that's right. I,
1: right. I, I've killed turkeys in his, in smoking stumps.
0: Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. The,
1: the dead insects and so forth. I mean, they come right back into them. So
0: yeah, they walk on coals to get there. Yeah, absolutely, they do. You know, when you talk about growing season burn, I had uh, Dr. Grant Woods on here a few months ago, and he was talking about burning in September. It's a great time, especially because we were talking about killing the sweet gums. You know, the, the anathema of Pete Rogers is a sweet gum tree. I cannot get rid of them. And and he said, "Men burn them in September, right when they're at the end of the growth and they do not come back. And I, thought, right. I I've never would have thought about burning that late in the year.
1: Yeah, and, you know, it's, a, it's an important thing for folks to, re- to recognize that a lot of these prescriptions, namely burning and disking, you're going to get a different result depending on when you do it. Disking is another thing. You talk about early succession. If you're managing old field habitat, mm-hmm. bush hogging, a periodic, let it start coming. You don't want it to get too far ahead of you because you're going to lose that early successional vegetation. Right. It's the same thing. I and mean, it's just going to be a matter of it's a longer turnaround before you have to put the plow back in. It. Right. If people can envision Uh, a field that has not been tended to in four or five, six years, you're starting to see right there, good understory vegetation, good places for these birds to nest, good places for does to fawn, Mm -hmm. a area, lots of food in that early successional vegetation. you got to think, you know, deer definitely are tied to the ground. Turkeys, they don't want to fly. They spend, you know, 90% of their time during the day on the ground, so you got to manage vegetation about as high as they can reach. You right, right. About from their perspective.
0: Right. And if it's taller than that, they can't see, so they don't feel safe.
1: And, yeah. and this is another thing that we're learning with research and, and, and burning and so forth. These hens, when you start, what little bit of a common denominator you can start to see with where these hens, you know, nest, they want to be able to see. Yeah. They want it thick enough to protect them. But they want to be able to elevate and see what they are hearing mm-hmm. in terms of predation and so forth. So there's a lot of there's a lot of down in the weed stuff that we're starting to learn more about turkeys using these GPS. You know, it used to be old school VHF radios.
0: Yeah, yeah. You
1: know, the kind you got your headphones and
0: your antennas. You got the antennas beeping. Yeah.
1: You know, we're we're now to the point now where we're about doing everything over again because the resolution of that old work. It was great work for what they were working with, but it just didn't answer the questions. Now right. we go, right. we can go back and look at this GPS data and go to the field and say this hen was nesting in this three foot area, and then right. we look at the the habitat components right there where she was and and and, and start understanding a lot more.
0: Okay. All right. Well, I want to I want to talk about the nesting in relation to hunting. Because right, a lot of people listen to this, they want to know how to kill turkeys and kill them more consistently. So one thing that I've never been able to answer, and I've never really asked you this, even the times I've interviewed you, is is if I'm hunting a turkey during turkey season and he's with hens, at what time of day does the hen usually go to her nest to lay her egg? How long does she stay there? And is it when, it, when does, in my mind, that makes the gobbler available? to Correct. try to call while she's going to her nest into to lay.
1: Yeah, and, and the timing of this whole issue, Pete, as far as when to start hunting turkeys and when these hens are nesting is very dynamic, and it changes very, very quickly. You know, definitely you can hear these birds gobbling in March.
0: Yeah, they're gobbling now like crazy.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and that's why you get the pressure to open the season. Let's open the season early we're hearing these birds gobble, but you got to understand that these birds are still in their winter flocks. A lot of that gobbling is them trying to sort things out. Who is who, who's going to be the man mm-hmm. when starting about right now, those flocks break up. Okay. Right. So as you, as you move to into the time period we are in right now, those birds are starting to scatter out. Um, you do have breeding going on. These hens will breed multiple times before they start laying. Mm-hmm. They will continue to breed while they're laying. And I know we're, we're talking to turkey hunters here, but a lot of hunters don't understand that. They understand a hen nests on the ground, but they don't understand that a hen, when she uh, initiates egg laying, she lays one egg per day, Generally. And when she has finished laying that egg, she turns back into a turkey for the rest of the day and roosts in a tree like she always does.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Only after her clutch is completed, and that's about 12 to 14 days, right. will she do, she she will go to what we call continuous incubation. So she's on that nest, on the ground, 24-7 for 28 days. She'll, she'll take a recess every once in a while. So, Back to this timing thing and to your question. Right now, you're starting to get the first few hens that, that may start laying. Okay. Right? So they're gonna, they're still roosting around these gobblers. We've all seen it. They all fly down together. They they do their thing. There's breeding going on. These toms are very difficult to get away from the hens. Right. That's why a lot of us are saying, let's just be patient. Yeah, let's start the season a little bit later. It's going to get mm-hmm. easy for us from a hunting standpoint. So that's going to continue on now. Very important. The research we did down in low country at the Web Center between 2014 and 2018, we were looking specifically at when these hens start laying. And, Pete, what we found was that way down the country, understand that as you get further north, it gets later. Now, we don't it know. Comes- in the upstate, what that time period is. We do know that down in Hampton and Jasper County, the average hen doesn't lay her first egg until April 9th. Okay. 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 So then you add 12 to 14 days to that, she doesn't go to incubate until the 22nd on the average. Okay. Look look what we're doing to these toms prior to April 9th. We're killing them all. That's kind of of been a little (laughs) bit wonky. Yeah. You know yeah. the legislature's been moving the season around. They right, understand right. this, and, and there's a lot of a lot of stuff going. You got some hunters that want it early. That got some hunters that say, "Wait a minute, this might not be good for the turkeys and so forth." So, right. right. The message is, if you look at the biology of the animal or the bird, they're going to tell you when the best time to set the season is. So, what you're going to see, you're going to see gobbling peak about the time. The average hen is April 9th time period. There's enough hens that are at least some point during the morning they're breaking away to go lay, and that right. exposes these toms. They get lonely. They're much more susceptible to calling. You know, much more cooperative. So, you know, we're still ten days,
0: ten yeah. days away from yeah. Now, on a on a let me see, I can figure out how to ask this for for this question we'll say they were in the laying season okay let's say we're around april 12th or 14th somewhere in there so they're actively laying pretty much all over the state um and but they're roosting with the gobblers and they'll fly down they'll do the little parade and and then they kind of as all hunters know they walk off and go do their thing but at at what time because i have a theory and i want to see if i'm right before i even tell you about what time of the morning or afternoon, does the hen actually leave the god? Because she her nest may be four or 500 yards away from where she's roosting or further.
1: Is that well, right? Yeah, that's correct. The problem is going through that egg-laying cycle, it typically gets later during the day. Okay. Usually a hen, because they have to, physiologically, they have to have that egg come down the oviduct, get the shell on it, and that repeats itself every day. Just like my chickens, yeah. It's not It's not like 8 o'clock every morning or 9 o'clock every morning. Right, right. But they go through this process, and it, it tends to get a little later each day. That makes sense. They may skip a day for that reason, because they, they can't cycle yeah. back through. So yeah. there's not a great answer to your question, because these birds are kind of progressing
0: as they're in that egg-laying state, if that makes sense to you. It does. It does, because my, my theory was – by 10 o'clock, the gobblers are usually lonely. That was my theory. Now, again, I haven't done the research in my journals to say, we know it gets later as the season goes on. I haven't done that, but that's a very valid point. Is Because I noticed my chickens. Because well, they lay an egg a day approximately the same time, but I, I was gathering them in the morning, and now I'm gathering them in the evening. Exactly. And, and see, there's another dynamic in that,
1: when, you know, say from from April 5 or 10, and you've got a preponderance of hens that are in the egg laying mode, and they may be getting a little later in the day, Right. they're all individuals. They don't all start at the same time. Right. Plus, at some point, you're going to start having some of those hens go to continuous incubation, so they're out of the picture altogether. Right. So it's going to be real hard, to your question, to pinpoint something because there's, there's so much individual variation.
0: Yeah. 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 I've often said, and, and I don't know, I probably picked this up from somebody years ago, but if I had to pick one day to hunt turkeys, I'd pick the last day of the season instead of the first day of the season.
1: Yeah. And Pete, I'm going to tell you, you know, when, you know, when we were doing the work at Webb, we were also monitoring gobbling. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we were doing that at Webb, which is exposed to hunting. Webb has a right. lot of pressure. It's hunted every day, but Sunday. Well, we were monitoring gobbling there, and we were also monitoring gobbling at Savannah River site unhunted. And brother, I can tell you this: as soon as the hunting started on Web, it truncated gobbling. Number wow. one, birds were leaving the population because they were they were dead. Yeah. Number two, the, some of them were getting boogered up, as we say. Yeah. The, they get boogered up, so good technical term. Look at it on a chart, on a graph. The web, which is hunted, was tracking in, in March, right along with SRS. And as soon as the hunting started, it bent that curve over into a downward trend from mm-hmm. a goblin standpoint. The unhunted situation at SRS, it continued on up until this, about the April 10th, okay? And then it started down, but all along from that point to the end of the season and into June, it maintained much higher than the hunted situation. So yeah. when hunters want to talk about the birds are gobbled out, like I said, dead birds don't gobble. They, their buddies get boogered up. And and
0: that's just the what pressure. it's what And it, the pressure just shuts them up. It
1: does. Yeah. And, and, and a real important point is if, if you could agree to start the season a little later, you're going to experience something likely. Like, like you've never seen before in terms of volume and mm-hmm. consistency of gobbling, just because what you were pointing to, some of these hens are getting busy with nesting. Yeah. And it causes those birds to be alone.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and the gobbers still looking for love, and the hens are, are too busy setting up housekeeping. They don't want anything to do with it.
1: And, 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 you know, to your point on the end of the season, you know, you could start the season at the end of April, and it would be monumental. Right. Those birds are still out there. They're still going to
0: be, still naive. The hens are yeah. gone
1: at that point. Yeah,
0: they're running up to you. Yeah, that's what I hope. <laughs> I hope that happens Tuesday. I mean Thursday morning too, even though that's opening day down there in Fairfield County. Um, as I said to you in the in the pre-show a couple of weeks ago, I did a podcast uh, where I took a chapter out of my book on how barometric pressure affects gobbling, and I called it high pressure gobbling or high pressure turkeys. And that was kind of a play on words where the listener would think this is turkeys that have a lot of hunting pressure, but I was specifically talking about barometric pressure and how the barometric pressure can affect gobbling. So would you mind helping me with the science behind that? Well, I'm going to try, you know,
1: when we first started doing the sound recording down at Webb, the first couple of years, it, you know, I was looking at barometric pressure, and man, it was looking really good. And, and I, I still think it is. We've got lots and lots more gobbling data now from multiple locations. Right. Not only in South Carolina, but from across the southeast. One student in particular who's, a, who's now working on his PhD at Georgia, uh, Patrick Whiteman, he was the first student on the study at Webb looking at gobbling and the nesting stuff. hmm and, you know, he's a new breed. He's very statistic. He's a good field biologist, but he's got the statistical background to be able to figure all this stuff out. And what, what we're finding now is, and, and you'll be familiar with the word statistically significant. Right. That's a science term that says, hey, there's a really high likelihood that, that A is different than B. And right, that's, right. A, that's a very high bar to have statistical mm-hmm. significance from a scientific point. What I can tell you is we're not finding that with barometric pressure, but from a practical hunting standpoint, and that's what I'm all about. That's right. I think there is something there. And it, it's, it's, it's that point right around 30, 30.0. 30 right. You can go into you know 29.5 to 30.05. That's when, and, and, and again, barometric pressure is controlled and is indicative of the larger weather pattern at the time correct correct so it's there's a lot of noise out there that's going on but i i have to agree with you even though we can't say in a technical paper that there's a difference in barometric pressure i think for the hunter the turkey hunter and a lot of us know this if you wake up and it's blowing and drizzling and cold if you've got a lot of days to hunt in the season, you might as well turn over and go back to bed because it's right. probably going to be a tough sell that morning. Other, right. on the other hand is if you wake up, look out, it's starry, it's, it's cool, it's calm. You might as well go to the woods. And That's you right. look at the barometric right. pressure. It's going to be
0: right there around 30. It is. It is. And while my unscientific research has shown Charles, as I said in that previous episode, is that it can be 30, but if it's falling, You better, it's going to be a little bit difficult and it can be 29, but if it's rising, then you're, then you're good. So, but I think it was 30.02 is where my research and my, and my own logging has said that, that that is kind of magic number, as long as it's steady there or rising, uh, that that is a, a good indication that, well, why aren't they gobbling? Why are, the, why are the turkeys so quiet? It's a bluebird day. Why aren't they quiet? Well, because the the pressure. It may be bluebird to us, but the pressure is dropping because there's something coming. There's a low pressure system coming. It may not be bringing clouds with it, but it's still a low pressure system. That's right. And the turkeys are going to be quiet. It doesn't mean you can't kill them. I think it's actually more rewarding to kill silent turkeys. It's not near as much fun as it is that that interaction. But when you can call in a mature bird and he comes in quiet and, and, and you're able to fool him enough to come into the, to the shotgun range when he hasn't said a word to me that's a that's much more rewarding and more of a thrill again it's not as exciting as bantering with them when they're gobbling their heads off but but it's still doable it's just a you got to put on your low pressure hat instead of your high pressure hat right sure and
1: we've seen some you know we've been kind of monitoring this along the same lines with deer and, and, and again you you get an experienced deer hunter or experienced turkey hunter, and they've learned these things over time, but
0: still we can't
1: put a scientific label on it. Yeah. A is different than B, but we know that there's something going on there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So why do turkeys flock to the fields when it's raining? (laughs) I don't know. I got a theory on that too.
1: (laughs) All I can tell you is people need to understand a turkey's brain is about like a peanut. Yeah. I don't give them a lot of credit for, for for having a lot of thinking ability. Now don't misunderstand me. They got good instincts and they're survivors and so forth. But they're not, I don't think they're out there figuring things out.
0: Oh, I don't know. That I don't know. It sure makes me think they are, Charles. <laughs> I, think, I think I think it was Colonel Tom Kelly said that uh, I think it was him, so forgive me if I'm wrong that, that 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 uh male turkey while he's in the egg, he's already plotting against me trying to kill him. He's already plotting against me. <laughs> Well, my theory on the rain is besides to dry off a little bit, but you see them out there when the drizzling is. As the water gets down in the grass, it forces the little bugs up onto the stems so they don't drown, and it makes them it makes it easier picking for the bugs. And it could it
1: could be, and it could be something about their visibility because in the woods with rain,
0: you've got another barrier to, to visibility and, and the audio too, and they can't hear as well. Yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah. So it's probably a combination of that. We'll say we're both right on that one. Yeah. <laughs> there you go so what is uh um from a hunter standpoint well let me ask this first do we know what the average i saw on the report that you have a number of jakes versus number of long beards or or um and i'm assuming a mature turkey and the statistics is two-year-olds or or, or older correct is, is that so you got a jake which is a yearling basically with a three to four inch beard stick straight out. Um, but then a long beard would be a six inch or longer, which is usually a two year old. And you rarely see the six inch. Very rarely. I think I killed one in my life, you know, yeah. and that was when I was young and didn't know what I was doing as far as bigger birds. It seems to go from four inches all the way to eight or nine. That's correct. Yep. You know, and uh, um, is it true too, that the length of the beard is contingent upon how tall the turkey is? Again,
1: from a scientific
0: standpoint, I don't know
1: if that carries any water. It
0: makes sense because
1: there is beard wear as they right. feed over and feed. So it does make sense that a longer, taller bird is going right. to have more room there for beard. Right, right. So, what's the oldest turkey killed in South Clan? Do we know? I don't. I know that a um, guy I used to work with had a band, and this was actually a pickup, I think it was a, it was a, a leg bone that had a band on it. And uh-huh. you re- it was a bird that had been re- you know restocked and this bird was eight or nine years old. That is not common though. Right. You know, right. It's right. not, not common. I would say, uh, obviously most of the birds that are killed are two years old. Right. And you do have some smaller segment that are, that are three and older. Right. I think in an unhunted situation, you will have them move through the age classes more so. Right, right. In hunting situation because, Pete, I'll tell you this. To make the numbers work, and this may come as a surprise to some people and others not so much, to make the numbers work, you about have to plug in a 40% mortality on gobblers due to hunting.
0: Okay.
1: I just okay. threw it out. So, you, you know, you're not going to have a preponderance of three and four or five-year-old birds when you're killing nearly half of them every year.
0: Right, right, as right. Far,
1: yeah. As far as jakes, by and large, hunters these days are overshooting jakes because if you go back and look at the proportion of jakes in the harvest in the in the 80s and 90s, it was much, much higher because turkey hunting was, was just coming in. People weren't... Right bird they didn't care what it was they wanted right. to shoot turkey they don't do that anymore it's and something and you know i don't have the 2020 turkey harvest report uh, on the website right now but last year um so what we've been seeing is is 10 to 12 percent jakes in the harvest that's okay. completely reasonable it used to yeah. be 20-25 percent oh wow that's also indicative that, that how that jake portion bounces around is indicative of your pre your previous year's recruitment if you got a lot of jakes historically if you got a lot of had good reproduction previous year there's a lot of jakes out there they Mm -hmm. get shot because there's so many of them right on the other hand if you had poor reproduction they don't show up in the harvest the next year for the obvious reason they're not right Right. last year was the lowest we'd ever seen it was five percent of the harvest the problem is I don't think we're overshooting Jakes that much. So that was indicative of poor reproduction, which we right. saw. We right. got right,
0: right. That's right.
1: not a good thing because you're going to have a hole in your age structure with that cohort of birds that are just simply not many there for right. the next two to three years.
0: Yeah. So why don't we have a long beard only look like Mississippi does? It has well, to be it, a long beard only.
1: Yeah, this last iteration that the legislature went through um, that gave us the new season framework last year there was a lot of talk you know we you know that they were they were understanding and, and, and looking at different ways to try to moderate the harvest they talked about no jakes other than for youth hunters they talked about no afternoon hunting and we probably want to hit on that in a minute and you know, they did not in, in the end, they didn't go in that direction. They did go in the direction of the one bird, the first 10 days. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that was all about the desire to open the season earlier than we probably, than we were recommending as an agency based on looking at, at breeding and nesting, but to try to limit that harvest early by saying, okay, we're going to open the season a little earlier, but you can only take one bird because we understand this potential risk of taking out a bunch of, a bunch of these adult toms before we get these hens taken care of. That's what that right. was all
0: about. Right, right. And I want to explain that too, because I had a conversation with a game warden friend of mine today, because I was I was a little confused on that, is if I kill a bird in, in South Carolina, you can only kill one one gobbler the first 10 days of the season. Okay. Well, we had the split season. So, and, and the two properties that that I'm able to hunt are in adjoining counties in two different game zones. So I said, so I'm going to go down to Fairfield County and hunt on Thursday opening day there. And if I kill a turkey, then can I then move over to game zone four and hunt there? Because it's already 10 days past the opening day, the opening one. So can I kill a turkey there in that game zone? Because it's past 10 days from the season of when it started, or can I not? Yes, you can. And you could have done it the other way around. You could have started the other way around too. Yeah. You could start in Kershaw right now,
1: kill your one bird. You wouldn't be able to kill another one until the first. But then Thursday, you could shoot one in Fairfield because it's a different game zone.
0: That's right. That's right.
1: Then you could go back to Kershaw and tag out because it's past the first 10 days.
0: That's right. So I could so in that scenario, which would be a perfect world, I could I could actually get a, get all three of my birds this weekend. Yes, legally. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Just make sure you use the right tag on the right bird because there are different. So your yeah.
1: Bird, you're your one bird the first ten days in Game Zone Two, Fairfield County. Yeah. Over to Kershaw, that's Game Zone Four. That the first ten days is over with. Right. And then you could.
0: Kill I your could shoot. Birds. I could shoot one, you know, Saturday and one Sunday, and all then and right. boom. Three days. That's the plan. <laughs> That's the plan, of Charles. Although I'm not hunting Easter morning, but, but you know, if it wasn't Easter, but I I may stay and hunt Monday so I can try to do that. And then I'm off to Kentucky in a couple of weeks to try to hunt turkeys up there. I've never hunted turkeys in Kentucky, so I'm, I'm looking forward to to trying that. So, Charles, I've kept you on here a long time. I do appreciate it mean, there's so much I could ask you about, about the turkeys. Is there anything that we – oh, you mentioned the afternoon hunting. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go into that, too, because, you know – most people that I know that the turkey hunt stop before lunch anyway. There's a few of us hardcore guys that will chase them all day long, uh, and, and there's lulls in there, take a nap, have lunch, and then kind of get back after them. But what's your thoughts on the afternoon hunting?
1: Well, I, I, I'm not going to say there's anything wrong with it, but I think it represents one of many changes that we have seen in the last 15 to 20 years related to turkey hunting. You can throw in Better equipment, shotguns, TSS loads, the dramatic increase in the use of decoys, blinds, and so forth. And I'll tell you this: I killed my first turkey in 1982, and it was a, almost exclusively a morning endeavor
0: at that time. Right.
1: You go out, you hear a bird, you work it. If it doesn't work, you maybe find another bird gobbling. Then
0: you're done. Yeah, about ten around. o'clock, you're going home. Right, right.
1: Yeah, I don't want anybody to to. Get the wrong impression, but there's a lot of afternoon hunting going on now. People still hunting turkeys in green fields with with, with blinds and decoys. Last year, Pete, 28 percent of the harvest was PM harvest, and I've got My to goodness. say that traditionally that was not taking place. And the question is, obviously, some of those birds would be killed in on morning hunts, right? But the question is, are these afternoon birds additive to what would be just a morning hunt? Right. You know, your traditional right. type hunt. So, again, I think if we look at changes in equipment and how people, how they approach turkey hunting, number one, we're much more efficient at killing these birds. Right. You know, we're dealing right now, Pete, with fewer turkeys by and large, turkey numbers have not subsided in fact they continue to increase slowly so there's just a lot of stuff kind of pointing in the wrong direction for these birds right yeah
0: yeah it is it is in most states i think only have morning hunts and some stop at 11 some at 12 and some at one um i would be all for personally having just mornings only i would like it to see go to one o'clock personally and that's because I've had success in later season when the hens are nesting, getting those gobblers that are walking around looking for love about 11 o'clock. They're vulnerable. You know, it's like, uh, it's like our friend Terry Madewell says, if I can get them gobbled after 11 o'clock, I can kill that turkey. Right. And, you know,
1: the thing about it is once these hens have been taken care of and are clearly if they're incubating at that point, they've been taken care of, Right, gobblers become
0: much less important. To the overall scheme of things. Right, right, right. That's just basic biology. You know? Yeah. Yeah, because you don't need them to breed anymore. Right. They've already done their breeding. So and and a hen of her 14 eggs, she could have 14 different partners in that. She could. It's not likely, but multiple paternities
1: we now know through DNA are very, very common in turkeys. Right. Hey, brother, we could go off on some social discussions about turkeys that would just knock your socks
0: off. <laughs> we'll do that another time. That would be fun. That would be fun. Cause I'd love to understand more about how, about Turkey behavior. How do turkeys behave? Particularly as
1: it relates to this breeding behavior.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. We, we,
1: I've learned so much with this most recent research
0: with DNA and using GPS that it's Mm -hmm. just, wow, it's amazing. It is. It is that that's fascinating stuff. That is fascinating stuff. Well, hopefully, I'll, hopefully, I'll be able to get one this year, and you as well. Uh, I hope you you'll be able to get out of the office and at least get a chance to chase them for a while. Anyway, you you are taking some days to go hunting, aren't you, Charles?
1: Yeah, my wife's actually on spring break next week, and she's a she's an avid turkey hunter.
0: Well, there you go. <laughs> that's perfect timing, isn't it? Perfect timing, Charles. Thank you so much for your time, buddy. Do you have anything else that you'd like to add?
1: Oh, no, just folks, remember
0: uh, m- remember
1: to get your tags, remember to tag your bird. Remember we got an electronic harvest reporting this year. We got information on our website and let's let's see how it goes this cycle.
0: Yeah, don't forget to do the electronic uh, tagging. I, I opened the app and was going to try to learn it and I realized that you can't learn it, you can only do it. So I was <laughs> like, okay, well, I'm just gonna wait till I kill one, then I'll figure it out.
1: Yeah, get your app go ahead and set up your profile. Turkey, this turkey season is in so you can view your tags. If you kind of act like you're going to check a bird, just don't, just don't press go in the end and you'll be able to see your tags and everything.
0: Right, right, right. And, uh and that's the transportation tag. So you have to have it, put it on the bird at the point of kill. Yep. Right. And then, and then it's still, and now it's one bird a day. It's not two like it used to be. It's one bird a day. And if you kill, if you kill one of the first 10 days of the season, you got to wait 10 days or go to a different game zone Yep, and then uh, tag your bird on the ground and then report your
1: harvest electronically by midnight of that day. There you go. There you go.
0: Charles, thank you so much. I do appreciate it, buddy. Thank you very much for joining me here on the podcast.